0: Hello and welcome to the IFG Live, the second week of the IFG Institute for Government virtual events. I'm Bronwyn Maddox and I've got a great panel here of IFGers. Gemma Tetlow, our Chief Economist. Hi Gemma. Hello. Nick Davies, our Programme Director for Public Services. Hello. Joe Owen, Programme Director for Brexit and Beyond. Hello there. And Alex Thomas, Programme Director for the Civil Service. Hi Bronwyn. Well, we're going to be looking at the government's first 100 days, something of a traditional exercise that we do. And it's fair to say that this wasn't quite what the government was expecting. The first UK case of COVID-19 was on 31st January, which is the 50th day after the election. So we might take that as a useful point in the back of our minds before and after the world changed. Although, of course, the budget was just under a fortnight ago, and that was still business as usual. It feels a very long time ago. So let's look at the government's agenda and then how this crisis of the coronavirus has affected that. I'm going to ask my panellists all in a snapshot just how the government's commitments, those long ago manifesto commitments, how those have held up. Joe, so let me start with you and getting Brexit done. That's a slogan that we don't seem to hear as much of these days.
1: No, I was uh, looking up actually what was happening a year ago today and there were hundreds of thousands of people marching on the streets of London uh, to protest about Brexit, which feels like a very, very long time ago from where we are now. And yeah, the general election, as you said, you know, you talked about 31st of January as the day that the first COVID-19 case came in. That was also the day that we left the EU and we haven't heard half as much about Brexit since then as I think we were expecting to.
0: And it's still going on?
1: It's still going on, just about. So, the negotiations uh, didn't take place last week. They were supposed to happen. The negotiating rounds are paused. We don't know when they'll resume. But so far, the government is steadfast uh, in its commitment that the transition period will end at the end of this year.
0: Well, I'm going to come back and press you on that point in a second. And Gemma, I, I was referring to Rishi Sunak's first budget. Uh, those was kind of 12 days ago. was widely seen as successful. Is that just another world now?
2: It does feel a very long time ago. I I think even 12 days ago, it felt like it was a budget of two halves. There was the sort of the long-term policy half, which announced actually virtually everything that the government had said it would do on tax in its manifesto. And then there was the second half of the budget, which was the COVID-19 response. And even now, that looks relatively small compared to all the other extra measures to support the economy we've seen since then. And Nick, uh, the government certainly talked
0: a lot about improving the the public services in its manifesto, in its budget. Well, that's all we're talking about now.
3: It is indeed. And public services are clearly under quite a lot of pressure now because of coronavirus. But the government actually did quite a lot in its first hundred days to meet its pledges. Though that's probably not surprising as those pledges were mostly small, symbolic and and fairly easy to achieve. I think the jury is still very much still out, though, on whether the government is willing or able to tackle some of the more fundamental difficulties facing public services, many of which are going to be seriously exacerbated by coronavirus.
0: Well, we'll come on to those points as well. And Alex, uh, knitting all this together, if it can, is the civil service really in in crisis uh, mode? Uh, how is how is that uh, holding up? And we aren't not hearing so much about reform of the civil service at the moment.
4: We're not, and um, uh, perhaps you know, not surprisingly, uh, civil service reform didn't feature that heavily in the uh, Conservative Party manifesto for the last election. It, it tends not to be the sort of thing that animates voters, uh, and so that's that's not a surprise. But it obviously, particularly uh, over and just after Christmas, uh, was very heavily present, and everybody was uh, suddenly talking about misfits and weirdos, and Dominic Cummings' blogs and civil service skills. Um, I mean, we'll we'll come on to talk about this, but but that that agenda is. Uh, you you know, insofar as it's how government is getting stuff delivered, how this crisis is is being managed, in part, is absolutely central to uh, to to uh, what the government's doing. But that sort of classic civil service reform uh, let's uh, let's bring in lots of new people, let's relocate the civil service uh, is going to take a hit like everything else through this crisis. I think.
0: Great. Well, look. Th- thanks very much indeed for that. Let's um, let's dig into some of these a bit, and I, I want to start with uh, where we just were starting in this conversation with uh, with Brexit um, as was, um, or the you know the Brexit transition period. Joe, it, it, it's one of these obvious questions, but and you, you've you've already told us the government said no, it won't extend the transition period. But really, what are we supposed to make of that?
1: So I think as every day goes by, it gets harder to see how on earth the government doesn't extend the transition period. I mean, if you think about everything that people were saying, were saying about Brexit, about the biggest peacetime challenge government had faced, unprecedented in scale and complexity, all of that was true, right? But it's even truer uh, for coronavirus and COVID nineteen. It's a bigger, more urgent, more critical job, and. It seems to me that, you know, if a government is serious about either of those massive challenges, it wouldn't do them both at the same time if it didn't have to. Um, I think there's a big challenge for the negotiations on Brexit that coronavirus presents. I mean, um, we were talking earlier in the year about sketching out the big battles to come on fish and on the so-called level playing field in the negotiations. I mean, all of those seem like second order issues to say the least now in comparison to what the government is facing. And it's, you know, remember that Boris Johnson put himself as the politician in charge of the negotiations. He is not delegated it to someone else in his cabinet. It's him that's running those negotiations, but clearly he can't. Um, He is too busy uh, with the more urgent task of focusing on uh, the coronavirus response. And then the second point I would make finally is, um, well, there's a lot of focus on the big political choices and what government needs to do for the negotiations. The reality on Brexit for this year is that this was when the big practical changes were going to come. This is when businesses were going to have to adjust, trading environments were going to change, um, all of those big challenges. And it seems to me that this government would have to... um, Extremely, uh, choose my words, brave uh, to yeah, come on, possibly
0: re- reckless. Yeah. Well, no I think idea.
1: yeah, reckless. You know, if we're at the back end of this year, and it sounds like th- you know the best case will be that the economy will be recovering after a big, big, unprecedented hit at the beginning of this year, is this government then going to turn around and say, by the way, we would want you to start hiring customs agents and understanding how to completely change your supply chains and how you operate mm-hmm. for Brexit?
0: So no, big, big challenges. Yeah, no, an essential point. Just one practical point. Um, is Michael Gove still uh, really running these negotiations for the Prime Minister, and what, what what happens next on those talks, if anything? So,
1: so it's David Frost who's running the, yeah. the negotiations for the Prime Minister. His special but advisor. Michael Gove is,
0: is is overseeing it in some sense.
1: So. Yeah, so it's actually quite unclear the kind of the roles and responsibilities and how they deviate. Michael Gove is doing a lot of the practical preparations. He's also doing. the the, the work on the joint committee and implementing the withdrawal agreement. Um, But those negotiations, so those negotiations were supposed to happen last week. They have been paused. Uh, Both chief negotiators, both the UK's chief negotiator, David Frost, and Michel Barnier on the EU side have got symptoms (laughs) of coronavirus. I think Michel Barnier has definitely tested positive. Um, So there are... um, There are big practical implications for those negotiations before you get into whether or not the politicians have got the headspace to make the big trade offs that they need to when they're focusing uh, on everything else that's going on.
0: Alex, what do you reckon? You were were involved as a civil servant in some of the the no deal planning. Is is there really any bandwidth for keeping on going with these these negotiations?
4: Uh, So I think there's... Bandwidth for keeping on going with the negotiations, I don't think there's bandwidth for delivering the outcome of them, whether that is uh, a negotiated settlement or um, not not having a a deal. Um, So, yes, of course, teams can continue to meet virtually, um, you know, for as long as chief negotiators are are, are sort of healthy and um, able to, talk to each other that process can continue it will be hampered by uh, the restrictions that we're all now uh, working under um but you know you can you can continue to to hash out a, a deal um but there, there's there's not the political bandwidth for that deal to be delivered as far as i can see but the far more pressing question is that as, as joe was saying the, the reality of being able to implement it just 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 doesn't seem to be there so i can completely see why the government wants to doesn't want to say anything on this at the moment um you know w- w- why should they in one sense it's uh it's 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 not a decision they have to make now although many businesses uh would would disagree no doubt but um uh but but i i i just can't see it happening i, 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 I is, one... is
0: it, isn't that the point on oh, sorry go, go
4: on no i, was just, I had one question for, for joe really which was how um how how the uh, coronavirus crisis had um, uh, sort of played into uh, the uh, kind of atmosphere and and and, and discussion around uh, Brexit in terms of there's some I've seen there's been some discussion on uh, whether we are or are not members of European information sharing networks and uh, and uh, daily or weekly calls between EU leaders. I was wondering if that was having an effect on the on the Brexit debate.
1: Yeah, so this is the question of
4: you know. We're talking about separating ourselves from this
1: block and no 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 longer needing the cooperation. And um, as many people have said, with such a global issue, does global cooperation, is it not at an absolute premium now? And we're starting to see some of the implications of pulling out of those forums. I mean, the reality is, you know, for the time being, at least, we are still we still have access to. Uh, the same level of information that we did as an EU member state. We're still, to all intents and purposes, an EU member state. We're just no longer in the meeting. So we will no longer have our representatives in those conversations at an EU level um, through the kind of EU institutions on responding to this. I mean, how that could play in again at the end of the year, if, you know, again, the talks and rumours are true or um, potential um, predictions are true at how long this thing could carry on if we are, again, facing the end of this year and the government's serious about um, removing us from certain organisations or um, systems for communicating, then I imagine they'll get even more, even more pushback. So, yeah, I think you're right. It does show that the, the implications of withdrawing from um, uh, machinery for global cooperation at a point where it seems extremely, extremely important.
0: Although, I mean, global cooperation, a point we might come on to another time, hasn't been absolutely at its peak, I think, in this. No, not yet. Um, Alex, I just wanted to pick up um, the point you made about, uh, well, the government's got no reason to say at this point that it, it needs to pull out of the, the transition deadline. I mean, the, the pressure on business seems to me, you know, there is a clamour uh, from, from businesses who've got uh, annihilating uh threats to them um, uh, from the coronavirus, uh, just not to add to any complication. Gemma, are you, are you, what are you hearing from businesses? Are they assuming that the government is simply going to get rid of this extra Brexit complication?
2: Um, I mean, I think government has been pretty clear in its communications so far that it wants to do whatever it takes to keep businesses going at the moment. Um, so I don't think we've heard anything concrete about removing some of the demands of Brexit, but clearly if that I would imagine if that's something that businesses are asking for, then the government doesn't want to see businesses going under because they're unable um, to kind of meet the extra challenges that are being put on them at the same time. It's not just businesses that have these dual demands on them. If you look at the way the government is responding to the need for support for businesses, you have HM Revenue and Customs suddenly having to invent an entire scheme for putting large amounts of money out to businesses to help them meet their way. And that requires HMRC to set up an entire new system in a matter of weeks, whilst at the same time they were also already trying to work on setting up new systems to deal with Brexit as well. So the civil okay. service and businesses are both having to deal with these
0: competing pressures. So, Jim, let's turn to some of these economic and financial questions. Let me ask you the conventional hundred-day question of what you think the go- of the commitments that the government made in the manifesto, he's actually on course to deliver.
2: I suppose, in terms of the economic commitments they made, there was sort of there were a set of tax pledges which were actually reasonably modest. They delivered essentially all of those in the budget. So we saw they announced that they would no longer be cutting corporation tax. 17%, they raised the threshold for paying national insurance contributions and they announced they're scaling back entrepreneurs' relief along with a few other bits and pieces. So they really did everything that was in their manifesto on tax in that first budget. The other major set of economic commitments or pledges they've made in the manifesto was around levelling up the economy, trying to boost growth outside London and the southeast. East. Yes, can some- that still happen? So the budget had some measures along those lines. We saw the confirmation of large amounts of investment spending and some allocation of that to specific projects. I think really since coronavirus has kicked off much more seriously, we haven't seen any talk of that yet again. Um, in a sense, really, this is a crisis that requires the whole country to pull together and everyone's um, trying to fight a common enemy, as it were. So we've seen much less of any sort of conversation about trying to promote the fortunes of one part of the country more than others. Um, Actually, if anything, obviously London has been so far worse hit by coronavirus than the rest of the country. So actually London's economy is under more strain and may well be shut down more severely than the rest of the country um, because that's where coronavirus has spread most quickly so far. What
0: about the extraordinary... Pledges that the government has been forced to make and has rushed to make in the, in, the, in sequence in in the past uh, week and a half or so wall of money. It's becoming, if you like, the employer of last resort in some in some cases, uh, rushing to try and prop up businesses and um, stop people from suffering hardship. Has that taken us into a completely new world?
2: I mean, it is a totally unprecedented type of response from the government, and in a sense, that's because this is a sort of economic impact that we haven't really seen before usually if you have economic downturns what the government is focused on trying to do is to get confidence up get people back out in the shops buying things but by the nature of this crisis the government doesn't want people to be going out and actually spending money in the economy so actually what the government is trying to do is exactly as you say essentially being the sort of provider of money of last resort, both directly to businesses to try and keep them going through what we hope will be maybe not very short term, but at least a temporary um, shock to the economy and putting money into people's pockets more directly as well. And that's all designed to try and ensure that once they're able to lift the restrictions on social interactions and Going out and doing things, that there are businesses still there that can pick up quickly again and get the economy moving again. And we're looking. I mean, some things
0: that may not be so temporary. Oh, it, it would it, uh, almost renationalization of the the railway network. Uh, the government taking stakes in airlines, perhaps. Um, it looks like it's it's fulfilling a manifesto. Just happens to be the the uh, Labour one.
2: I think that the really interesting question will be whether many of these allegedly temporary interventions actually end up being permanent. Some of them you can see would be relatively easy to scale back. And we we probably don't think that there's much appetite for the government to effectively lend directly to businesses in the longer term. But some of the other measures, and as you say, things like taking stakes in railway companies, potentially taking stakes in airlines as well. And also some of the measures that have been taken on welfare spending. So the government has announced that it will, for 12 months, increase the generosity of universal credit and tax credit payments those are measures which it may be harder for the government to reverse because as you say ahead of the last election there was certainly some appetite uh, in some parts of the electorate for the government to take a much more active role in railways anyway and there had also been calls for the government to be more generous in terms of increasing welfare payments to people so both areas where there was already pressure to make those permanent measures before coronavirus kicked off and so it would be very hard for the government to then them back even after this crisis has passed,
0: But we may be see, seeing, uh, mightn't we, a whole shift um, in the role of government, in the role of the state, a, a sort of a rise in the in the role of the the, the public sector. I mean, one, one of the questions to me is how much. Uh, The business environment bounces back. How many of these, uh, how much of the gig economy, which has for all, uh, it's it's much maligned, created a lot of jobs and been part of the the vibrancy of the economy in the past uh, 10 years or so, whether that uh, bounces back at all or or not. And um, Nick, if I bring you in on this point, I mean, public services have always been a battleground of, of, of elections, but suddenly they are now centre stage in, in the government's
3: attentions. Yes, they are indeed. And I think clearly there has been quite a lot of debate over the past decade about whether government has under-invested in critical public services. Um, and indeed, as uh, the Institute's own performance tracker research has found that's that, that... That's the one we put in SIPFA. That is the one that we produce in partnership um, with is the data-driven analysis of nine key public services, that actually in most services, performance has declined either in terms of the quality of the service or the scope of the service. Um, Because in many services, that's because funding has been cut. But even in things like the NHS, where funding has risen, it's risen much more slowly than it has historically so there's a the question here about how well prepared our public services were for a crisis of this nature given the amount of funding they've received over the last 10 years
0: Nick one of the points you've been making in, in writing in the performance tracker is that the justice system uh, which has had a lot of cuts uh, recently has um, perhaps uh, one of the um, cases of, of underinvestment it's been struggling to uh, for example bring in video conferencing which it could do with now
3: yeah, so I mean, the courts is is a funny one because we've certainly heard uh, a huge number of kind of complaints from uh, people working at the front line, uh, particularly kind of uh, lawyers, about kind of the how poorly criminal courts are performing and kind of risks to the to the quality of justice. Actually, very little of that shows up in the data, partly because although cuts have, as you say, seen some quite. Substantial cuts. There's also been quite a marked reduction in the number of people being charged. Um, so th- there's been less demand for for court time. As you say, they are. There has been trialing of uh, video uh, courts that's largely been outside of the criminal court. So uh, and it's questionable. I think the extent to which they will be able to quickly ramp that up. Certainly, it's they don't wouldn't be able to quickly replace all of the kind of in person uh, trials that are currently taking place, and but it is also questionable how long those can continue. And there, you know, been a huge number of complaints over the, the last few days, uh, whether from the police, from uh, judges, from barristers, uh, or from defendants, that they are having to go into a potentially quite unsafe environments uh, in order to have their day in court.
0: Alex, it's something <laughs> you've um, you've had on your mind?
4: Yes I haven't uh, if 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 I'm permitted a personal diversion for a moment I'm sitting in a room next door to a family law barrister who's trying to organize video conferencing with the uh, the court system and uh big because the you know the the public sphere is not um uh, is 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 not set up to do that. Chambers are offering uh, uh, offering their own uh, uh, facilities in order to uh, continue as many hearings as, as possible. So we're, we're seeing that kind of play out in in real time. The uh, the the wider point, I I, I uh, completely agree with what Nick was saying, and I think we we can't predict. Uh, all of the consequences of this crisis, and it's going to reshape and reframe government and, and, and all of our uh, lives in, in ways that we don't know. But I do think one of the uh, consequences is likely to be that people think about uh, the need for capacity and for uh, sort of some some surplus and resilience in uh, in the services that that we use in order to deal with um, uh, with. Crises like this, you can't predict the crisis that's coming. But uh, t- ten years and more of focusing on efficiency and uh, paring back public services is, um, uh, is 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 something I suspect that will come to an end.
3: And on that capacity point, I mean, quite aside from coronavirus, the courts and prisons were already going to need need to ramp up in response to the government's other criminal justice policies. So the government has committed to 20,000 additional police officers. It's committed more money for the crown prosecution services. More money for police officers and prosecutions mean more people are going to be going to courts, more people are likely to be going to prison. And we're doing some research at the moment to, to quantify this. But it's very unlikely that the existing spending settlements are going to be enough to maintain service performance in courts and prisons, given those additional people that are likely to be coming through the system.
0: I'm going to come on to that in a second, and actually the, the spending review, which I, I want Alex's thoughts on very much. But Nick, what about social care? It's been one of these problems that government after government has acknowledged, but but failed to be able to do very much about. In fact, it's been pushed down to the local government level, who've had all the, the burden of carrying it, but not always the money to to do that. Do you think it's it's finally going to get fixed now?
3: Well, the government had promised to begin cross-party talks on social care in its manifesto in its first 100 days. And Matt Hancock, the health secretary, uh, duly wrote to all MPs earlier this month asking for suggestions, which probably counts as beginning the talks. Though I suspect more substantive talks uh, were somewhat difficult, given that Labour still hasn't elected a new leader. In terms of the deal, I mean, I think the outlines of one are there. So there is broad cross-party agreement on capping the cost of care and people not having to sell their homes. And the biggest challenge has always been the politics of raising this money. But, you know, as we've noted here, actually, the kind of the politics of taxing and spending looks quite different in light of coronavirus uh, and the government's response. I think and also, it's and also
0: awesome. the, the, the ways of getting the NHS to work. I mean, the NHS has been saying, you know, very clearly for weeks now since the crisis b- became clear of we need to get our people in beds home if they're not needing urgent intensive treatment. And we hear, I mean, quite a lot anecdotally of that beginning to happen. I mean,
3: yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, the ability to uh, to move people from hospital beds out into the community has always been um, one of the kind of the key challenges that hospitals face and one of the things that actually uh, the government put money into in the in the last few years to, to reduce what's known as delayed transfers of care. Um, but clearly, the, you know, social care has always been somewhat of a, a Cinderella service and having been funded uh, being responsibility of local government, which has seen its funding cut Quite substantially, the, the capacity just hasn't been in there, and indeed, the kind of the public offer of social care has shrunk um, quite substantially um, in the last decade.
0: And Alex, um, what do you think about the civil service in this? Um, how, how is it? How is it managing? Do people move department in this? Do do departments work to well together as as you begin to put together the response to, to a crisis?
4: So it's, you know, obviously the system is under immense strain. Uh, uh, None of us and and no civil servants will have seen uh, a crisis quite like this uh, before. Um, there will be rapid reprioritization of um, uh, resources and particularly staff uh, within each department. They will be working out, even those that might not seem to be in the front line uh, uh, for uh, this uh, uh, this issue, but they will be working out how to move staff uh, internally, how to uh, throw as much r- r- resource at this. Um, and actually, you know, what, what one reflection on, on, on the broader crisis is that you know, individually, sector by sector, area by area the machine is moving at incredible speed and ministers, civil servants, special advisors are all doing uh, things that we would consider quite extraordinary in in normal times. The one of the hardest things to get right is the coordination. And with all of this activity, um, the uh, efforts that the civil service and uh, uh, the, the kind of whole machine are putting into coordinating through all of this uh, are, are, are immense, but it's really, really difficult to get right. And I think we are seeing some of the challenges of that play out in the communication and the, uh, and the choreography of, of, of announcements and, and government interventions.
0: And what about delegation to the regions? Is this this good for mayors or bad for mayors? They don't really have the powers to deal with this. Apart from that, think, they've now got another another year for her in, <laughs> yeah, having been put yes.
4: Back. <laughs> yes, they've got got an extra year to deal, deal with the fallout from, from all of this. I mean, it's like I was. It's some uh, some politicians, some uh, bits of the state will step up, and some some will uh, struggle. um I mean, I think it it, it shows the importance of uh, having uh, a voice for some of these cities. We're seeing with sidi Khan, Andy Burnham, uh, others. They can uh, they have a platform. They have a bully pulpit. They can uh, they can. Uh, uh, sort of reflect to the voices of their citizens they can apply political pressure they've also obviously got an, an administrative job to do in terms of running transport systems or, uh, or or whatever but it it does also add to that coordination job so it's really important that the the, the right people Representing the right bits of the UK, and we see this with the um, uh, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland administrations as well, are represented at the uh, Cobra, the Crisis uh, uh, Civil Contingencies Coordination meetings, and that um, the, the right people are being involved in the right decisions. But it's a it's a massive coordination effort, as well as all the individual um, bits of uh, bits of work that, that different bits of the system are doing.
0: What about the business as usual question? I mean, we were talking about a spending review. Um, going to happen this summer, which would set budgets for departments, you know, for the next three years and uh, the whole of Whitehall was going to chip into this. Does that really get blown out of the water now? Uh,
4: I think it does. We haven't heard anything, again, understandably from the government on exactly how they're uh, planning to do this. But I I don't think you can have anything like a normal spending review in these circumstances. As with so much of this stuff, it depends how quickly, how long these measures are in place and how, uh, how, how quickly uh, we get through it. Um, but you can't talk about allocating, you know, an extra half a billion or £100 million pounds here, there across public services um, when we're in a, a battle to, to keep them afloat uh, and and talking in the uh, hundreds of billions rather than the hundreds of millions.
0: And, and finally, and, uh, along with that, uh, the constitutional commission the government is going to have it really feels very um, uh, academic almost now, um, and it was worried about things like judicial review and and people challenging its decisions. And now it, now it's it's it's, uh, it's in the middle of getting emergency powers legislation going through to, through through parliament. Do you think that uh, that goes out the window as well?
4: So I think I, I think in the short term it does. Um... And uh, to, you know, to set up, talk about, uh, we in the IFG have done events on page 48 of the manifesto and uh, and, and uh, judicial review and, uh, and stuff, as you say. So I think in the short term, all of that goes out the window. It's not going to be a priority for the government. I do think, uh, and uh, we will, uh, uh, of course, be, be thinking about this as well. But uh, the um, in a crisis like this, once you're through it, you look back, there will be a public inquiry. There will be a reflection, a huge reflection on how we're governed. So some of the, the constitutional questions will be seen through the lens of how well we did and how well our system held up to a crisis uh, like this. So I suspect that's the direction this will, this will go in.
0: I think that's exactly right. Well, look, to, to wrap this up, let me ask each of you what you're looking for in your area, both as a touchstone of um, whether any bits of normal life keep on and, and as a measure of how much coronavirus is affecting your area. Um, and just to give you time to think, um, let me chip in from my, my side. One of the things I'm going to be looking at is really what happens to the climate change agenda, which was very much a priority with the, the um Big meeting in Glasgow, the big summit in, in Glasgow due in November. And there is really a question in my mind, not just of whether the government convenes that, but whether it can actually pivot on that and try and make uh, an opportunity call to governments to try and uh, uh, come together and do something about the climate. Um, it could, if, it, if it's agile, but this hasn't, as I said, been the greatest of crises for international cooperation. And that's one thing that I'm going to look to for a sign of whether governments can uh, work together uh, and also on whether things that seemed um, absolutely essential and dominating the agenda just a few months ago have really been um, pushed away. Let me start with, um, let's let's go in the order we we started with. Joe, what do you reckon? What are you looking at?
1: So we've talked a lot about extending the, the transition period. I mean, I do think that it looks more and more likely, and I think if that does happen, a really interesting question will be for how long because the option is for up to two years and how long the two sides agree to extend by will give us an indication of just how long they think this thing could take uh and just how serious the kind of implications for the program could be over the coming uh, months and years
2: good thanks Gemma. i think if i may have two things that i'll be looking yes, at. yes absolutely. <laughs> On the general economic side, I think what will be interesting over the next few months is to see exactly how the economy does keep going, whether the government needs to go further to prop businesses up and ensure that they're still there once this crisis is over. I guess the longer term question for many businesses will be whether this period of working from home, different ways of being, has longer term implications for the viability and business models that they have on the sort of role of government side i think what will be interesting to to look at and to try and understand the question that you posed which is does this alter what people's view is of the role of government in the uk so far what we've seen is obviously a big increase in public spending and in government stepping in but effectively funding that larger role entirely through borrowing and i think what will be interesting as this plays out we come out the other side of the crisis is what happens in terms of the debate around funding that larger role for the state through extra taxes instead. And that is what would be needed to maintain a bigger role, a more generous welfare system in the longer term. And so far, we haven't started to have that sort of
3: discussion.
0: I think that's exactly right. Nick, what, what in your patch?
3: Oh, well, Gemma has mine. I was absolutely going to focus <laughs> on the on the, the conversation about how, how we start uh, paying for these things, as, as well as how much we're going to spend. Um, so in that case, I'll just um, focus on one specific thing, um, which is, uh, the, the number of hospitals that are meeting the four-hour A&E waiting time target. So uh, compliance with that target had already dropped uh, substantially um, over the last uh, few years, and this had been the, the worst winter on record in terms of meeting that target. It always takes a few months after winter for A&E departments to, to improve their performance again. Um Given we were already struggling and now that coronavirus is hitting, I, I, I'll be keeping a, a close eye to see uh, what happens to that performance over the coming months. And indeed, whether A&Es have recovered at all by the time the demand starts to spike again, um, as it seasonally does come the winter.
0: Interesting to see whether the figures um, are even available. Um, you can absolutely see why they, they might not be. Uh, Alex?
4: Um Yes. So it was only a few weeks ago that we were talking about, uh, with the Home Office, uh, Pretty Patel, Philip Rutnam bust up and, and Philip Rutnam's resignation, a crisis in terms of relations between civil servants and ministers. Uh, uh, some of the sort of assumptions we, we made about the civil service being being really severely Tested, so I will be looking out for through this crisis what what the um, implications of that seem to be for that relationship. How far um, the prime minister and senior ministers are, uh, you know, relying on working well with the civil service. We've obviously seen the um, uh, Johnson-Witty-Valance show with the chief medical officer and chief scientific advisor standing alongside the prime minister, and the, there's a sense that in the you know in the depths of this crisis, ministers and the civil service machine just have to work together, and that's likely to have consequences for um uh, for for trust and for relationships uh, there so it may be that that all of that gets gets better i'll i'll also be looking out for uh, uh what 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 comes after and there's a sort of 1944 butler uh education act uh, uh sort of strain going through my uh, my thinking about how far um uh, how far ministers politicians and this is probably where a, a sort of dominic cummings uh, idea generation uh uh uh, special advisor role comes in how far uh, the government civil service ministers are thinking about what comes after this and uh and and, and what the what the future of of the way government works and, uh, might look like
0: thanks thanks for those thoughts about what comes after which still feels quite a long way away we'll be back soon with many things from ifg live and the weekly ifg podcast later in the week so thank you very much all for listening do leave us a review and we will talk to you soon